And so what we find here in Revelation chapter 17 is a one world religious system. And what we are seeing today right before our eyes being developed, not just through the WEF, which represents the governmental side of things, but through other institutions where there's a push for a one world religious unity. And what will happen during the time of the tribulation, as we'll see, is the two are going to be wed together. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today's sermon is entitled, The One World Religion Reset. Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 says, The one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Over the next three days, Pastor Carl will be preaching on the three characteristics of religious Babylon, beginning today with the perversion of religious Babylon. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. If you're new, it should be easy to find. It's the last book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, we are between a book-by-book-verse-by-verse exposition, and I'm doing a series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. This is actually the 16th message in this series, and of course, it will ultimately culminate with Christ's return to the earth as he rules and reigns for a thousand years, and then we enter into a brand new heaven and earth with the new Jerusalem coming down. Now, certainly, as we began this series, we spoke about the rapture in Israel's rebirth. And God could have, I suppose, say a thousand years after Jesus ascended, gathered the Jewish people, brought them back into the land, and set the stage for the second coming, but he didn't. Because after four, five, six hundred years, he didn't, many thought, well, God's done with Israel. But after some 2,000 years, God has brought the Jewish people back into the land. It's one of the super signs for the return of Christ, along with growing apostasy, along with immorality, like Noah's day, like Lot's day, and globalism. Globalism is one of the marks of the last days. Here on this chart, as you can see, the next great event in God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. After the church is removed, There's a period of time, we don't know if it's weeks, days, or months, but it would appear to be short. I suspect this is when the Battle of Gog and Magog will take place, but with millions of people gone across the planet, there'll be great crisis on the earth, and there'll be a perfect environment in the midst of crisis for a world leader to step on the scene. He will sign a treaty with Israel, And that will begin the seven-year clock that the prophet Daniel, that John affirms, and that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. The first three and a half years, Israel's protected. The last three and a half years, they're grossly persecuted. And of course, uh, we are witnessing in our day, not the birth pangs. I often hear popular speakers say, well, we're in the birth pangs. We're not. That's not really to handle God's word accurately. Now, of course, to have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And if anything, maybe it's near term. 
And certainly we're witnessing some of the Braxton Hicks contractions. But Jesus is clear in Matthew 24, verse 8. The birth pangs do not begin until the first half of the tribulation. So we study verses 4 through 14 in that chapter. We saw a perfect parallel between what Jesus describes and the seven sealed judgments that unfold in the Revelation. And then Jesus taught right in the middle of this seven-year period, that middle slash, you could write above there in your minds, the abomination of desolation. It's a turning point. It's a game changer where we go from tribulation to great tribulation. And so Jesus has Peter, James, John, and Andrew there on the Mount of Olives. They ask him questions about his return. And he gives the longest single answer to any question that's ever asked. And he speaks of this event in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. The abomination of desolation. Now, these were men who studied the scriptures. They knew precisely what Jesus was referring to. In our day, because people no longer read the Bible, and sadly, it's no longer taught, many are in the dark. But this is an event that will take place, and we began by studying the time frame in which it will happen, and we looked at Daniel's prophecy, and just as Daniel said, just as Jesus affirmed in Matthew 24, 15, and just as John the apostle declared in the Revelation, happens right in the middle of that seven-year period. Then we looked at some of the specifics, and we'll further explore those in the days ahead, as to how the abomination of desolation will specifically take place. And then third, we're going to see how global religion will be the glue to achieve the three major objectives, governmentally, economically, and religiously, that the Antichrist will have. There's a lot going on today that have the same objectives. It used to be called the New World Order. Today, it is dubbed the Great Reset. But it's really nothing new It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, some would say the first great reset took place when God flooded the world and created a new place for Noah and his family to enter. They walked into a brand new, fresh, cleansed world. But they were still sinners. And I suppose from a heavenly perspective, that was indeed a great reset. But the first great reset that took place or was attempted to take place through man took place in Nimrod's day. And of course, now Charles, uh, Klaus Schwab has dubbed through his book called The Great Reset some objectives that he and leaders from around the world have had. They have met every year since 1951 when he founded the World Economic Forum This past uh, year, just a few months ago, once again, the World Bank was there. The International Monetary Fund was represented. Uh, The United Nations was represented in leaders, including presidents, prime ministers, and kings from over 100 nations came together. 
Now, man has always desired, whether it's a Pharaoh or a Hitler or a Stalin or a Caesar, to rule the world, but it's never happened. But there's coming a time in human history when God will allow it to happen for a short period of time, and it will be worldwide in scope. Now, today, when people talk about the problems of the world, and there seems to be a growing multiplicity of them, they're convinced that the solution is global in nature, that the only way to solve the problems is to create a global consciousness. And so they have many objectives. One objective is that because they believe that much of the trouble in the world today come with borders, with countries, they want to eliminate the borders. And so if you've studied the WEF and one of their objectives, they're doing the very thing that God said not to do. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, we're told that God has made from one man, being Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations. So God has established borders. And when borders are eradicated or eliminated, you no longer have a nation. And that may be part of the genesis for the immigration issues that we have. Even our own president has named his four most important piece of legislation, Build Back, Build Back Better. That comes right out of the World Economic Forum. So four million people now have walked over the border unhindered. You say, oh, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. Now, God's not against immigration. In fact, God told the Jewish people that they were to welcome the alien, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, all of them, because they were once strangers in a land. But in welcoming them, they had to ascribe to the principles by which the theocracy of Israel was under. But no longer do people see that. There is certainly an economic motivation in the WEF. It's called socialism. And again, that's in violation of Scripture because God teaches the principle of personal property in Holy Scripture. So they see this crisis that was called COVID as an opportunity. Again, Schwab said the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. So they don't see the pandemic, first and foremost, as a catastrophe, but as an opportunity. And so with the pandemic waning, at the most recent meeting they had just a few months ago, the center of their discussion was climate, global climate crises. And again, they'll use this, no doubt, to try to create a world unity, a world government, a world coming together. And so just recently, our president signed into law what was called the Inflation Reduction Act, and it's dubbed the single largest investment in climate action in U.S. history. It will profoundly alter the international landscape. And so many of the decisions, if you just read the news that they make, is predicated on this green world that they're trying to create and to develop. And as I hope to show you next time, one of the ways in which this entity is going to come about is there'll be a collapse in the economies of the world. 
With that said, this man, Klaus Schwab, many times will get behind his podium with his robe on, and he doesn't hide that he heads a movement that has religious theology behind it. Every man has a theology. Even the atheist has a theology. His theology is that there's no God. Theos, God, all of us. It's your study of God, what you believe about God. The atheist, the agnostic, everyone has a theology. And Schwab really waves his theology on his robe and on the front of his pulpit. And so I highlighted a few of these things to you last time. There's the star of Ishtar, that nine-pointed star, also called the Enneagram, and it's a symbol of the religious occult, and it brings together a lot of physical traditions that are found in Buddhism and Catholicism and uh, Taoism, the Baha'i faith and so forth, and Greek philosophy. Uh, And it's the pursuit, they say, an interaction with cosmic deities. He teaches this that we should interact with cosmic deities. What he's really talking about is interacting with demons. Another prominent icon on his podium is that bull with a cross positioned between its horns. That's a symbol for Mithraism. Mithraism is that you worship and esteem the creation. That's Romans 1 all over again. That's the United States of America. That's why we are experiencing the wrath of God. Wrath comes on a number of levels. There's cataclysmic wrath sometimes through things like the flood or Sodom. There's eternal wrath in the future. There's tribulational wrath. But there's present day wrath. Paul speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. And so when a nation no longer acknowledges God as God, oh, God didn't make us, evolution created us, then God gives them over to sensuality, to homosexuality, to a depraved mind. And we are witnessing that right before our eyes. Notice also on the podium, the Latin words that literally mean knowledge of immense power. That's an an expression from Gnosticism. Many of you know about Gnosticism because John deals at least with pre-Gnosticism in his first epistle, 1 John. But again, their argument is that the occultic belief as you interact with cosmic deities will bring enlightenment, but not the truth of Holy Scripture. And so here's this man. He's a transhumanist as he describes himself. He employs 700 people in Geneva at their headquarters, not to mention he has offices in New York, San Francisco, Beijing, Tokyo, to name just a few cities. And at their most recent meeting, again, they had all these leaders, UN, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and over 100 nations came together. They're not naive and stupid. I'm not saying that everyone who attends the meeting ascribes to these things. But you can't be blind to where this man is coming and what drives him, among other things. And so what we find here in Revelation chapter 17 is a one-world religious system. And what we are seeing today, right before our eyes, being developed, not just through the WEF, which represents the governmental side of things, but through other institutions where there's a push for a one-world religious unity. And what will happen during the time of the tribulation, as we'll see, is the two are going to be wed together. 
And so Revelation 17 speaks of this coming world religion where the governments and the religions of the world form a unity. What we see here is history before it happens. That's what prophecy is. God writes history before it happens. And every prophecy God has ever written, he bats a thousand on. He is never wrong. So we would do well to pay attention this morning. And of course, I think what will be the glue, among other things, will be religion. Hardly will you find someone who's so committed to a political party that they will die for it. But in the realm of religion, it's very different. You have Muslims who will blow themselves up for something that's not true. And then we have millions of Christians throughout the centuries who have died unwilling to renounce Jesus for what is true. And so Satan knows the power of bringing the two together, and that's what he is going to accomplish in days ahead. Revelation 17, I hope you have found it. Let's begin by reading our text. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now, just to zoom in here on the immediate context so you know where we are in the Revelation, here's a chart that might be helpful to you. Again, the rapture has already taken place. It takes place, it's described in Revelation 4, when a door in heaven is open. And so you don't see the church between Revelation 4 and 18. You do not see the church again until they come back with the Lord Jesus in glory. And so the seven-year period will tick off. And during the seven-year period, in the first half, you can see seven sealed judgments. We've studied these in some weeks past. They are tribulation, but not of the most intense kind. They're awful, but not what is going to come. And so there are seven seals. And of course, the first six seals perfectly parallel Matthew 4 through 14. And we saw the parallel. It's not accidental. And that's why I say we're not in the birth pangs. The birth pangs are still future. But then there's this middle event that takes place, the abomination of desolation. And the seventh seal is open. And in seven seals, there are contained seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, there are contained seven bowls. If you remember, when we studied the book of Revelation some years back, the seals can only be seen one at a time. But when the seventh seal is open, you can see all seven trumpets and all seven bows, and it is so, like, incredible, it takes your breath away, and there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. And so, here's one of the angels who had administered the bold judgments, And so what you find here in, by the way, Revelation 
16 and 18 is God just slowing down for a moment and he's showing us what is happening in the interim. And so it's often in fast motion and then God steps back, he pauses and kind of looks back at what has been happening. So when you come to Revelation 7, he kind of stops and tells you what was happening during the time of the seal judgments. The second coming to the earth happens in in Revelation 19. Right now here in 17 and 18, again, he's in slow motion. In chapter 17, he's describing this religious entity called Babylon and her demise. And then in chapter 18, economic Babylon and her demise. They're both in the same place. They're both destroyed because they are wed together. And so we read in verse one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters. And we'll see in a moment, this great harlot also called the woman is a description of this religious entity, not of a literal woman, but of a religious entity. And she is dubbed here the mother of harlots. She's known also as Mystery Babylon. There's an actual city called Babylon, and then there's what we call Mystery Babylon. Mysterion describes something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. Paul says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. It was in the Old Testament, but it was hidden. But now under the new covenant material, God has completely unfolded for us the catching up of the church. Paul said, I tell you another mystery. God has removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek and brought them together into one body. Again, it was there in the Old Testament, but now it is fully revealed under the new covenant. And so this mystery Babylon is actually found in the Old Testament in kernel form, but it is now unfolded in the New Testament. Babylon is an important term. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and 44 of those verses refer to Babylon. That's about 11% of the book of Revelation. So for God to devote that much time to Babylon, we should pay attention. And God knew that people in every age and every dispensation throughout the course of human history could be confused through religion, through false religion. And so like Jerusalem, which is the city of God, this coming place, Babylon will be the city of the Antichrist, the city of the evil one. He will literally rule from this particular place. And so the first time Babylon appears in Scripture is in Genesis. The last time it appears in Scripture is here in the Revelation. The first time Jerusalem, and by the way, the single the, the two single most cities that are mentioned in all of the Scripture are Jerusalem and Babylon. One representing God's plans, the city of God, the other representing man's plans. So Jerusalem is mentioned over 900 times in Scripture. When I take people to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the Muslims say, well, that's their property. And I will often ask, I said, how many times do you think Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? Take a guess, 100, 500, 300. It's never mentioned once. So the fact that Jerusalem was their place of worship, that's something that 
eventually evolved into a teaching that they taught. But Jerusalem is an important city. In fact, it is the single most important city on the face of the earth. It's more important than Beijing or Washington or New York or Tokyo. It is God's holy city. Now go back, if you will, to the book of Genesis. I think it will be worth turning. Go to Genesis chapter 11. I hope you bring a Bible with you. You'll get much more out of a sermon if you have a copy of the scriptures in your lap. Genesis chapter 11, because what we find in this section of scripture is really the first mention of this place called Babylon. If you remember, after the great flood, God commanded Noah in Genesis 9-1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yet when you come here to Genesis chapter 10, the people had multiplied, but they hadn't completely obeyed the commandment. They weren't spreading, they were clustering in what's called the land of Shinar, which by the way, Daniel 12:2 tells us that's the place that Daniel was taken to, also called Babylon. Babylon is a later version of Babel. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word that is translated Babel is the same Hebrew word for Babylon. In fact, many English Bibles don't render it Babel. They render it Babylon. But some translations will put Babel so as to distinguish it from a particular geographical location. So here are these people. They're clustering in the plain of Shinar. And they basically say, this is the place where we are going to build our civilization. We're not going to scatter as God commanded us. We're going to stay together. Now, if you notice Genesis 10 and verse 9, God has already noted for us in that verse that Nimrod is behind this rebellion. He's the leader. He's dubbed a mighty hunter, or you could render it a mighty warrior. And by the way, that title is not a compliment. Now, God's not against hunting. I'm not afraid to shoot a deer. I wouldn't be cruel to an animal. Cruelty is something the wicked do. You say, well, I can't shoot a deer. Well, someone shot the beef you had on your table last night or did something with it. God's not against hunting. Actually, he commands us to kill and to eat. But he is against hunting men whether it's a Hitler or a Stalin or a Nimrod who is a picture, who is a type of the coming Antichrist who will literally destroy millions of people. And so their defiance, their rebellion is summarized in these two words, let us. Look at Genesis 11, verses 3 and 4. You might want to circle let us. It appears three times. They said to one another, come let us. That's the first let us. Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. And so the coming Antichrist, called the man of sin, he's going to unite men together. He's going to bind them together in a one-world government. So let's build bricks, let's burn them, kill them thoroughly. We want a good, solid structure. And they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. They said, come let us, there's a second time, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us, there's the third one, let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 016. 
Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out her podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.